Hello, I'm Kathy. And I'm Gary. And this is Torah Talk. Welcome to Torah Talk, the intersection of the mundane and the miraculous. Here we have bold conversations about faith, culture, and politics, and where we fit into God's plans in the 21st century. If you could partner with God, would you? Gary and I have often lamented how difficult it is to teach people within the church that their Savior is Jewish, that he honored the Sabbath and celebrated the biblical feast days, that he followed the biblical dietary laws. They can read it in their Bibles, but so often that's not enough for them to believe it. It's not enough for them to question years of teaching that Jesus was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, BLT-eating revolutionary who rejected all things Jewish and started something new, the church. Now, despite overwhelming evidence straight from Scripture, we often hear the phrase, I know what the Bible says, but... So why does the church as a whole reject the Jewishness of Jesus? Why does it reject the centrality of Israel in God's plan of salvation for the world? Is it stubbornness? Is it self-righteousness? Or is it something much more basic and primal? Today, let's talk about the answers to these questions and let's talk Torah. Long ago, God declared his redemptive plans for the world he created. Unfortunately, most people have ignored these plans. Now, as the end draws near, believers and non-believers are being irresistibly drawn to the celebration of the biblical feasts which outline God's plan of redemption for mankind in the world. If you found yourself curious about the biblical feasts and you want to know how and why Christians celebrate these holidays, Read Declaring the End from the Beginning, Our Past and Future Revealed in the Biblical Feasts. In this book, author Kathy Martirosian delves into the history and culture surrounding the biblical feast days of ancient Israel, as well as how Yeshua, our Messiah, has fulfilled four of these holy days in the past and how he will fulfill the other three when he returns. Visit TorahTalk21.com to purchase Declaring the End from the Beginning, our past and future revealed in the Biblical Feasts. So Gary, I started with a statement um, that's one of our favorites. I know what the Bible says, but... but. (laughs) And I think we've we've addressed this before, and it it really is the definition of idolatry, when we think we know better, is how we've defined that. Yes. So, and and, and we've heard it, we've seen it many, many times. And, you know, honestly, I'm sure there are times when... Uh, that's exa- that's what our attitude has been and could mm-hmm. be because, you know, you get really attached to your own ideas and ways of thinking. <laughs> yeah, the, well, yeah, of course, there's a maturity and a growing. Um, but uh, before before I was walking uh, as a believer, of course. You oh, know, absolutely. I, I know knew. my own way. That's you know, right. I, I, I'm God. I know what's best. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, Gary, there's been a lot of talk um, amongst even believers and particularly amongst young people of uh, Jordan people. Peterson, okay, mm, very so very popular. Uh, many of you in our audience may be familiar with Jordan Peterson, and maybe you're familiar with a, an activity that he has ta- he has recently taken on, which was a roundtable discussion about the book 
of Exodus. Now, if you have not listened to it and you have quite a few hours available, <laughs> maybe in the car or something like that, I would highly, highly recommend that you find this roundtable discussion. Um, it is behind a paywall. Um, at least most of it. I think you can find pieces of it at the Daily Wire. And I did find some on YouTube. Okay, that's uh, what I'm saying. So yeah, I think you yeah. can find pieces of pieces. it. Because full, full disclosure, I have not watched the entire full series okay. that you're speaking Well, of, I haven't watched I the full series either, but okay. I, I, it's so good that it takes me a long time to mm -hmm. get through. It might be an hour and a half for each session, but it takes me three or four hours at least to break down, to, to, break down yeah. to take the notes and everything. So anyway, what he's got is about eight or nine um, very learned uh, scholars or experts in their field, be it um, New Testament, mm -hmm. Old Testament. He's got Dennis Prager in yeah. there representing the, yeah, yeah who we, <laughs> many of us love. Um, he's got writers. Uh, he's got, of course, uh, Jordan Peterson comes at all of this from his psychology background, mm -hmm. which I find particularly interesting because I have that background um, in, from school in uh, clinical psychology. So I find his input and his take about scenes that I've read, verses I've read in the Bible over and over and over, particularly the book of Exodus, okay, mm -hmm. the, the story of the Exodus, hearing it from his psychological take is really quite fascinating to me. You know, so in this particular um, episode that I was listening to, they were at the part where they were talking about Pharaoh's hard heart. Mm -hmm. We've talked about it many times, sure. right? And we've also mentioned that of all the times that it talks about his hard heart, three times he hardens it himself. Mm -hmm. Six times it's done for him. Can we say that? <laughs> <laughs> he has a little help. He has a little help. God hardened his heart yeah. or whatever. So they were talking about this concept in a way that was a lot different than what I, I was used to. And they... One of the, the guys mentioned something about the lizard brain. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I've heard that. I, I know what that is, but okay, that's interesting. This is a different how, yeah, way how to, apply how here, does right? this apply, right? So, all right, audience. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to tell you without getting too scientific. So please, I am not a scientist. I do not play one on TV. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the very basics. Our brains have different parts, and these different parts are responsible for different functions. Okay, pretty basic so far, right? Okay. The front part of our brain, consisting of the neocortex, enables language, abstract thinking, reasoning, and planning. Okay? Mm -hmm. The back part of our brain, composed of the basal ganglia and the brain stem, is involved with primitive drives related to thirst, hunger, sexuality, territoriality, as well as habits and procedural memory, like putting your keys in the same place every day without thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Okay? So... It's this back part of the brain known as the limbic system and is thought to be the seat of emotion, addiction, mood, 
and lots of other mental and emotional processes. This is the part that they're referring to as the lizard brain. Yeah, I think of it as kind of you file things away. Right. You, you learn something, it becomes habit, you file it away, and you don't really have to think about it too much. That's it's just right. automatically programming. In, That's yeah, right. Yeah. I was reading a, a Psychology Today article, and they were describing this, and they said the lizard brain... Um, he said they call it that because the limbic system is about all a lizard has for mm. brain function. It is in charge of, these are the F words, fight, flight, feeding, fear, freezing up, and fornication. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, that's the basics that right there. It, <laughs> so automatic routines, which over time we've learned to do without thinking, like you said, filing it away, right? Mm -hmm. um, could be something like driving now, that's largely performed by our lizard brain, which is a little bit scary if you think about it. But we all know that phenomenon, Gary, where we're driving down the road, we're engrossed in a conversation yeah. now that we have our phones, right? right. And even prior to phones, it could have been engrossed in thought. In thought. Yeah. Right? We I, all did that. We've all done that. Right. Yes. And you get to where you are, and all of a sudden you're like, how did I get here? Yeah. Well, yeah. what, you know, were there stoplights? I guess I stopped at them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> we hope so. Exactly. So what was happening was that your lizard brain was kind of guiding what you were doing because the, the front part of your brain was busy in that conversation. Right. Okay. So it took over and it did what it was supposed to do. So Jordan Peterson, who I, I you know, I absolutely a door started describing what happens when we make a habit or even when we practice sin. I, I mm. love that term practice, practice mm. sin. Okay. We can sin. It's the practice yeah. of sin. Those are different ideas. They are. Because when you think about what is, what is, practice mean to you? you any of us who have been athletes over the years you you go to try to uh hone your skill and and it comes muscle memory and you just you don't have to think right. about it so much so you're doing it over and over and over again getting better and better better at it now we and you know i was just thinking about this right now as i was saying it i, I think about king david yeah because everybody says well king david sinned but King David didn't practice sin. Correct. He did sin, yeah. and then he repented. Yeah, that's that's the difference right, right. there. Unrepentant sin. I, I know this this could take us down a whole other path that we're not going on today. But uh, you know, we we talk. People get all upset and say that you know you're being judgmental or this or that when you when you point out someone who is practicing or unrepentant sin. Say, for example, in a congregation, it has to be uh, cleaned out. Right. Uh, but then someone says, well, that's hypocritical because everybody sins. No, this is the difference we're talking about. The difference between practicing sin, a lifestyle, unrepentant versus the, the momentary lapse. Exactly, which yeah. we all have. Yes. Right. So he's talking about this, and he's describing it in his psychology lingo, right? Mm -hmm. And he says, when, when we are forming a habit or we start practicing sin, at first we have to spend a lot of time attending to this new habit. So remember when you first learned to drive a car? You had to think about it a lot, right. okay? And we all remember that. Mm -hmm. Years go by, you don't really think about it, hardly at all. You just do it. So now let's think about lying. If you were to tell a lie, at first you have to think about the lie and how you're going to pull it off. You have to work out the details, plan it. But if you practice lying on a regular basis, 
it becomes pretty automatic. Mm. You don't have to think about it. It comes, we say it comes naturally. Yeah. And sadly, I mean, if you've known people like this, they don't, I think they almost become unconscious of the fact that you know that they're lying. That's part of that whole limbic system. You don't have to think about those um, things like hunger. You don't have to convince yourself you're hungry. You're just hungry, right? Okay. You don't have to think about that. Okay. Mm -hmm. You don't have to put a lot of time and effort into that. Just happens. So when we're establishing a habit, this is according to Jordan Peterson, and I'm going to use a lot of his terminology because he's the expert. This process changes our brain physically. Okay. So this is kind of cool. Mm. The brain creates, he described it as a neurophysiological mechanism for lying. This little mechanism starts in the front part of your brain where you attend to it, you create it carefully. But then the mechanism for this habit moves to the back part of your brain, your lizard brain. It literally creates grooves in your brain and it lodges itself in the back part of your brain. You mm. were saying filed away. Yeah. Okay, another yeah. way. I was thinking of that term, get in the groove. Yeah. I don't I was like, is that from that? I, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but it could be. <laughs> it, could, it could be, I suppose. So JBP, as we I affectionately call him, Jordan Peterson, said the problem with these neurophysiological mechanisms is not that they aren't complete. They're actually very complete. They, they, they explain everything. But get this, they are low resolution. Often they are low resolution and erroneous. Yeah. <laughs> so they're very complete. Yeah. But they're wrong. Wrong. Right? You know, so um, it's, that's what I think we deal with regularly. I think, you know, as we're dealing with these things about, the Hebraic, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, roots of the faith and so forth. We're coming up against um, concepts, maybe neurophysiological mechanisms right. lodged in the in the back part of the brain, I think and this, they 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 may be very they're very complete. We know they're very. I think complete. you're you're onto a brilliant track here, uh, Kathy. I think that that's exactly what's happened. It's just it's there. What, what what we said a moment ago just become unconscious to the fact that you're you're not aware you're even lying here's a case where totally unaware that you're wrong right and i've even or even where they came from right or where they came from and that's that's uh, true about a lot of things right but definitely in christianity not understanding where pagan practices where the where the origins of things that we're doing in christianity they're completely pagan right and and we just have no idea we think somehow that they are Christian. Right, right. You know, JBP said something kind of interesting in describing these mechanisms. And I find this interesting because he doesn't claim to be a Christian per se. Mm -hmm. He's open to learning. And we've all, as we've listened to him through this series, all of us are like, wow, he's learning a lot. This is cool to watch this. (laughs) But he goes, he did say this, these neurophysiological mechanisms become like a subpersonality, and when you try to change, the spirit that inhabits that mechanism isn't happy. Mm. That was kind of interesting, yeah, right? You like the spirit. The and then he went on, and I actually had to write this down specifically. He goes, "The habit can't animate you or shape your perception if it wasn't a spirit." Whoa. 
Okay. Mm. So you build in these habits, you allow that spirit that constitutes those habits, not only to inhabit you, that mechanism in order, in order to inhabit you and gain control, it has to shut down all the rest of your brain. Not only is it alive, it causes pain to kill. Wow. That's a powerful statement. Yeah, coming from as what you described as a man who's not sure about his spirituality, right. uh, I think is a recognition of some uh, a very sp- a true uh, a spiritual truth. And so let's okay, let's back up and let's think about this. It's a big statement, but mm-hmm. we all know this to be true. Think about addiction. Mm-hmm. Okay, addiction's a habit, right? You you get started. The addiction mechanism. Okay, using JBP's terms, has taken over the reasoning part of your brain. Okay, and we all, you know, if we've had any experience with addiction or someone who's addicted, we know this to be oh, true. My gosh. I, I've watched this destroy lives because, and someone they know they're destroying themselves, yes. and yet they will not. That's right. Stop. Yeah. It's so deeply embedded in the grooves of their brain, it doesn't want to give up its place, so mm-hmm. to speak, and it takes over and basically shuts down everything else. So JBP went on to say, you can't really kill this mechanism. You have to build another new mechanism that will shut it down. Mm. And the problem is that whenever you're stressed, the new mechanism is more likely to shut down, and then the old one will pop up again. Wow. We all know this. Yeah, we, we, I've, we've witnessed it. We've tr- tried to work with people with addiction, and uh, it's, it's very sad. It, it is. And you know what? It's not – I'm going to take it on a really light level. I've been trying to give up coffee, okay? <laughs> that must be deeply – in my back part of my brain, right? That I, it's not an easy thing for me to do. And the other day I was a little stressed. And the first thing I was like, when I, when I was thinking about it, I was like, Oh, I just would like a cup of coffee. (laughs) And what I've been trying to do is replace it with, um, actually I've been doing the lemongrass tea, Mm -hmm. but okay, it's fine. But it really, not didn't quite want us quite satisfy whatever that was right. within It's funny. Me. I didn't realize you were going through that, too. I, I've had to replace coffee, and I, I've tried um, uh, hibiscus tea recently with right. lemon in it. It's not <laughs> like, quite as satisfying. It's not as satisfying. But, 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 but it, you, so we're replacing. You are. I'm replacing it with another one, and it's a, and you have to do that. If you don't do that, then that will easily come back. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that parable, right, about cleaning the house, yes. and the house is empty, and then, they and then the demon that had left it brought back seven spirits. Yeah. Okay, yeah. it's that same. Mm. Well, you know, since you're you're tying the spiritual side of this, and I think I'd like to do that here mm-hmm. too. With we we you know, because I, I think the practical is is so important. Right. And then we look, we can look and see how it plays out in in the Torah. Mm-hmm. Um, the example that I thought of here is is um, what was happening with Balaam uh, when when he was paid to curse Israel. Remember, mm-hmm. uh, in in Numbers twenty three verse twenty one. God says through Balaam this about Israel. He has observed, he has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord, his God, is with him. Okay? So we're talking about Israel dwelling in tents, separate apart from the rest of the nations. As they're supposed to be. As they're supposed to. And 
God sees no iniquity. They're, they're keeping the commandments, right? So what does this wicked Balaam do? And we read in the Torah, he's the one responsible for convincing the men of Israel to consort with the women of Moab. So he... That basic lizard function. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. He appeals to their base, that primal urge of sexuality that you just talked about a moment ago, found in the lizard brain, that overrides their, their... uh, better Any judgment, better judgment, reasoning, everything reasoning, that's up in the front keep, part you know, of the they brain. They know that they, God told them to keep the commandments. They know that this is wrong. Yet that primal urge, that sexual urge, that we know how strong that can be, Balaam understands how to get them to fall and to fall away from God by, uh, by you know, he knew urging, human nature. He yeah. knew, he, I mean, he may not have understood neurophysiological mechanisms. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, right. but he understood human nature. That's right. And, and, and that's where it comes from. Right. So what you're doing is defining where this, this uh, urge comes from. That's where right. This, 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 that's uh, right. He was a smart man, but, yeah. but he was just observant. He knew, he you knew. know, he knew. So now let's look back at uh, Pharaoh for a minute, okay? The mechanism that Pharaoh had created was the lie that he himself was a god. Therefore, he didn't have to submit to the God of Israel. Okay, mm-hmm. who is this God of yours, he says, right? right? And I, I don't care. <laughs> so, so over the years, this we'll call it a God complex mechanism moved to the lizard part of his brain, and it got deeply, deeply into those groups, physically changing mm-hmm. the makeup of his brain. So is this what was happening when we see that at first Pharaoh hardened his own heart, okay, and so he made some decisions on his own, he reasoned on his own, Mm. but then it was hardened for him, so to speak. The grooves just kept getting deeper. His God complex was so strong, it shut down all thinking and reasoning in the other parts of his brain. Thus, he kept going despite the death and the destruction all around him, just mm. like the addict. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. He, you know, we, we've had many discussions about the idea of it wasn't so much a hardening as was a, a strengthening to defy God. That's right. And if, if, if what we just described about Balaam and the children of Israel, they defied God because of a primal urge. Mm-hmm. If he had this inside of his head and, and he was defying the one true God, all it took, all it didn't take much on the part of God to give him strength, strength to do to that. Do that. Just right. Like, you know, and, and he could have been built into the way his brain works anyway. Right. Right. With yeah. this whole lizard kind brain idea. Kind of just encouraging idea. him to be himself. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's what it was. So I think what I find interesting is looking at similar, looking at this, epi- this episode in the Bible from all these different takes so to speak. Okay. Mm. So how we have this now, we have this psychology take on it. It's not just looking at it theologically. Right. Right. Um, Which I find cool. Yeah, sure. So Jean Piaget was a famous child development psychologist in the mid 20th century. And he said that there was no learning without transformation of pre-existing structures. Mm. So he said that children go through stages of development, and at each stage, they have to be able to take in new information and transform transform the way that they think about the world. Now, 
I was reading, and I'd love this example, it said, for instance, a young child may at first think that all animals with wings are birds. But what happens when he encounters a bat? <laughs> it has wings, but it's not a bird. So something in the child's pre-existing way of thinking has to give way to accommodate this new information. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's a neat, simplistic way to show the building blocks of our learning right. process. But yeah. what he's saying is that something that was there before has to, yeah. to be pushed aside. Yeah. Um, you need a, a more... Uh, high-resolution neurophysiological mechanism, okay, <laughs> yeah. to overcome that lower resolution that all animals with wings are birds, right? okay? So that that mechanism can account for a time and a place for that child to kind of help understand the world, okay? It's starting to explain. Point. Yeah, a yeah. place to start, okay? So wings do make something different usually, okay? So that's a good reference point. Mm. But it doesn't account for everything, right. right? And so as the child learns more information, they have to replace those mechanisms, okay, with the better uh, more complete, not not even more complete, but more correct mechanism, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So he said, this is Peterson again, he explained that the neurophysiological structures we create are generally pretty complete, okay? They map out our world specifically and completely. So for instance, someone who's practiced believing that they're always a victim, all right, think about this, mm. we will take in all new information and filter it through that existing neurophysiological mechanism. They will always see themselves as a victim. In order to change that, they have to create an entirely new mechanism, a mechanism that says they have agency and can choose their own destiny. That's hard to do. Yeah, we've, we've witnessed this over the years. I think we, you know, we like to uh, use these terms like right, left, liberal, conservative, mm -hmm. Um, you see, you see that this way of thinking sometimes in in, in groupthink. Yes, you know, often. absolutely. Yeah. You know, so we just have different words. We've always called this victim mentality, right? right? But here's kind of a, a better understanding of what that actually, what's actually happening mm. in your brain to explain this concept that we use of victim mentality. So, once again, remember. Jordan Peterson was saying, and we know this to be true from Jean Piaget, that this mechanism usually exists in low resolution or is just plain erroneous, mm. okay? So it's there, it's complete, it explains everything, it's just wrong, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Great. Yeah, now what, right? <laughs> right. So they were saying when you learn something new, it's almost like something old has to die and that's very painful. Or at least you have to really work on creating a new mechanism. So for instance, like I was just saying with coffee, someone who has to give up smoking has to create a new mechanism for dealing with stress, like mm. exercising. And then when they're under stress, just like me with my coffee, what yeah. happens? They pick up the cigarette again. Yeah, yeah. We all know that to be true. We do. And you know, it's funny you said that word true, because when you were talking about this, I, I was thinking of that love for the truth you know we were talking about when it's Ooh. if we're wrong and it's painful when we try to replace it you have to develop a love for the truth so that you desire to change oh i like that yeah yes yeah i think that's, that's, that's really really so that truth is more important than 
how pre, comfortable pre-existing, uh, yeah pre-existing ideas, ideas thoughts or how comfortable you are with them yeah okay yeah that's that's good so now let's think about the israelites when they came out of egypt this is kind of another good example their mechanism for understanding the world was based on the idea that they had been slaves for many hundreds of years. So we call it slave mentality, mm-hmm. just like victim mentality. Mm-hmm. So what did God have to do in order to create a new nation of people to serve him? They had to wander in the desert for 40 years, and everyone over 20 had to die. Pretty so, rough. Woo! Yeah. But God recognized that that slave mentality, it that neurophysical yeah, mechanism was deeply ingrained mm-hmm. in their mm-hmm. brains. And, and I guess he decided that was not even possible to change it, you know. But I remember, remember Caleb had a different spirit? Yes. So there was something different, talking about the spirit that JBP talked about, or something different animating him. Absolutely. Now, I'm glad you brought that up because I love Caleb and the way he stood up there. And it says he had a different spirit about him. And it shows you that it's not impossible to break free. But again, we have to be, we have to be willing to break free from that group mentality. Yes. And, and seek the truth. Right. Yeah. Love, the love of the truth. Yes. Love of the truth. Yes. You know, JBP said something really profound, and he goes, we don't want to ossify, okay, um, Harden, let me, before I go any further, (laughs) I love listening to him and this roundtable discussion because my vocabulary (laughs) has so greatly improved, okay? I did watch enough of them to know that you're talking about some pretty heady, yeah, exactly. So we don't want to ossify or harden so so that we get to a point that we have to have a bloody trauma mm. so that we can learn something new. That's what happened to Pharaoh. Yeah. He thought he was God. He practiced living like a God on a regular basis with everybody serving him. It became so natural for him. Right. Being a God was something that existed in his lizard brain, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That was natural. Yeah, deeply embedded. Deep, right? and deep, deep. And he literally had to experience bloody trauma the death of his firstborn son, in order to learn that he was not God. Mm. You know, we, we, when you think about that, you know, it almost it builds a, a sympathy up for Pharaoh, doesn't it? Yes. When you, when you think about how, how, what a lesson he had to learn. Uh, although I know I did listen to some uh, Dennis Prager uh, was laughing. I think, you know, I have no sympathy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, for these bad guys, you exactly. know, because of the harm that they're causing to good people. Yes. And yes. I get that. Yes. But, uh, you know, isn't it sad, though, that we have to go to this extreme in order to get to someone's well, we attention? We call it learning. We can learn this the easy way or we can learn this right. the hard way. Right. right? That's yeah. what we're really talking yeah. about. No one wants to experience bloody trauma, okay, Um, over and over again. So is there some easier way than bloody trauma? (laughs) Well, you know, it might be the word of God. It might be. To Jehovah's, you know, universal instruction that we call the Torah, 
might save us from bloody trauma. It do you might. think? I might. If we obey his commands and we he's laid out this choice between life and death, blessing and curses, we're choosing life and not bloody trauma. Exactly. But boy, that is a new neurophysiological mechanism that you have to get into your brain to overcome the old ones, right? Yeah, you mean the ones that like, well, we're just led by the spirit. Do yeah, or how or even <laughs> as much as or do you Yes, that one too. Yeah, we're going to talk I, But it's the about... same kind of idea. Um, um, it's what I just said at the beginning. I know what the Bible says, but, but that yeah. concept, you yeah. know. So I found another uh, conversation they had was really interesting. One of the guys there is an, a writer, and he writes fiction. And he started talking about the hero's journey. So once mm. again, this was another way to kind of look at this same idea that I, I loved. So he was saying, think of a hero in any of your favorite stories. Mm. It was like, it wasn't easy what he did. Right. It was risky. Did that person experience discomfort? Oh my goodness, yes, mm -hmm. right, okay. A person who's a hero always steps outside his or her comfort zone. Right. He puts himself at risk. He's off balance for a while. He wanders in the wilderness mm -hmm. for some time, right? Not comfortable at all. We don't want to put ourselves at risk and be off balance. Right. Purposely. It's, right, it's right? uncomfortable, right. <laughs> but... The reality is, Gary, that in the long run, doing so over and over on a small basis is actually pretty good for us because mm. that's where we learn new things. That is true. That's everything we learn is really in that wilderness experience. That's why God had to hold them there for so long yeah. is they had to unlearn the other things and relearn the new things of serving him. Yeah, it's natural as human beings to be, you want to be comfortable. You want to right. be homeostasis, if you want to use the term. I mean, you, you want, you don't want to have to be put out. And and to learn new things obviously takes effort. That's right. And and we we, we have to be put out at times to, to, right. to grow and to, to become the and, people of God that we're supposed to and be. And what they were saying, they were, they were saying that with the uh, vocabulary of, we have to practice small hero's journeys all the time mm. to get used to operating outside our comfort zone. So we have to open ourselves up to the idea we may be wrong, mm. okay, on any number of things. Um, or we might have something to learn, and that something might be helpful to us. Uh, it might even be fun and exciting, but right. we don't see that. So, you know, you think about someone, okay, simple. They're uncomfortable because they don't know how to dance. So they mm -hmm. hang up against the wall. They don't really talk to anybody. They don't. That's their comfort zone. I don't do that, right? But you may be missing out on a lot. So you can keep missing out or you can take a dance class. Right. Be willing to look a little awkward, get a little silly, okay? And, you know, and step outside your comfort zone. Now, you might find, hey, this is something cool. I like this. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. This is fun. I can meet new friends, you know, but you only get to that 
by being uncomfortable. Yeah. And we, and I think everybody can relate to that. I mean, um, probably think back on your lives. I, I can remember taking my first, my speech class in, in speech class is classic. <laughs> wow. I mean, you talk about everybody was in the same boat. So nervous. I mean, to the point people want to pass out, you're sweating and you're nervous. And then the more you do it, the more you stand in front of a crowd, the easier it gets. I mean, it, that's it, the perfect example. It's always speech class. Speech right? class, absolutely. For anybody who can relate to that, I mean, it, it's it's horrible. Right. The, the feelings that you have when that you first have to get up. Right. Um. You know, and but maybe in a more uh, on a personal level. I mean, that was a personal experience of right. mine. But then you mentioned this idea of having to um, overcome being wrong. You know, as uh, as a former pastor, having to go through that experience of understanding, look, everything that I've learned to this point needs some modification. That's here. right. Maybe not. Maybe it's not all wrong, but but a whole bunch of it was right. You know, and, we didn't we deal with that with recent the COVID experience, yeah. where the experts, oh, right? Goodness, we yeah. uh, in the long run found that many of these experts were were wrong. Okay, oh, they had low resolution neurological mechanisms embedded deep in their mm. brains that. They didn't want to let go of at all. Even when we started getting complete evidence, better, higher resolution Mm. evidence that um, that was contradictory. Right. That was hard, but it was easier for those of us who weren't experts. Isn't it? Isn't that it? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. They were, it was painful for, and, and I still don't hear too many admitting it, but right. those of us who were not experts, but looking at the evidence objectively, uh, we saw through we it. We actually had an advantage. Yeah, we did. We actually yeah. had an advantage that's there. True. Uh, absolutely. Good point. You know, they, okay, talk about another great vocabulary word. Okay, here we go, folks. Yeah. They talk about, they've often mentioned in this roundtable discussion, Pre-cosmogonical chaos. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, okay, how can I get this into a conversation? (laughs) Outside of this podcast, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how. But, okay, so what that means, pre-cosmogonical chaos, before its origin, origin, the cosmos, Mm -hmm. okay, Mm -hmm. had no order. There was chaos. So, therefore... It could potentially be ordered in an infinite number of ways. Nothing was set in stone, so to speak. Nothing was embedded in a lizard brain of the world, if you want to (laughs) say it that way. Okay, so there's that chaos idea that actually allows for new things to emerge. That's Mm -hmm. an interesting way of looking at it. So one of the guys was talking about this new way of helping people with depression or OCD. And it's a therapy that lights up both sides of the brain, causing some amount of chaos or lack of balance in the brain. But it's this chaos that liberates the person from the ruts that he's in the OCD ruts or the depression ruts and allows him or her to have access to more pathways rather than just the same old ones. Mm. That's brilliant. It is. That's brilliant. But they had to uh, make happen in the brain a bit of chaos wow. so you could lift them out of that. That that is that is brilliant, and that's exactly what you experience. Um, you know, I I can remember going through that process with with the, everything that I had learned up until that point of saying, you know, uh, God, 
if I've been wrong, I need to know. That's right. And then you, then you, then it sat down and starts to research. And when you, when you, I begin to read, you know, where, where I was wrong and that causes chaos in the brain. Do I, do I, do you go, do you continue to go down this path where you're comfortable or do you stir it up and then, and, and realize that possibly everything that I was teaching was wrong? Uh, that's a lot of chaos. That's a lot of chaos. Yes. And I've asked that question before, and you've heard me say, I think I've done it on this podcast. Ask the question to a person, if everything you knew was wrong, wouldn't you want to know it? That's right. But a lot of people, that but answer would be no. no. They don't want to know because they're very, very comfortable where they are. That's right. You know, yeah. when we allow ourselves to step out of our comfort zones, in a way, we are putting ourselves, as you said, into pre-cosmogonic chaos. Okay. <laughs> you didn't say it exactly with that word, but I'm going to... Put that word in there again. So anything could happen and it's kind of scary, but it's the only way that allows you to open up to the possibility of new ways of thinking and looking at things. Mm. So, you know, we talked about this in a, a, granted, not a really deep psychological way, but with some of the psychology uh, lingo and, and explanations, but And we've kind of been hitting on some of the Hebraic stuff, but now let's look specifically at what I started this podcast with, which is the challenge of teaching Christians about the Hebraic roots of their faith. Mm. You know, for many Christians and for the church institution itself, the common understanding is that the church is a new and separate entity that has for the most part replaced Israel in God's economy. Mm. This is why we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. This is why many Christians believe that they've replaced Israel. It's why Christians look at us, Gary, as if we have two heads when we suggest that perhaps God's plan for all of us is to honor the Sabbath and celebrate the biblical feast. And they look at us and they go, but we're not Jewish. You know, Gary and I have been calling this... um, lovingly paradigm shifting, Mm -hmm. right? It's just another way of looking at it. And we've had to do so much of it. We we really have. And that's what I was describing a moment ago of of having to relearn everything that that we were once taught. And I I just want to share, Kathy... Um, a little bit from Copernicus and the Jews. That oh, I know that you, okay. You, another book, another guys. Book. Copernicus and the Jews. We're going to do a whole podcast, but yes, I, 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 I need love to, this. I need to share, share so this. So go get this book now that Gary said this. Will, Copernicus yeah, I, and, the, and the Jews. <laughs> read that book. I want. I just want to read a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we will have to do a whole podcast yes. on this because it's, but it's really confirming um, everything that we've been talking about for, for years now. Um, maybe, maybe that's why we love it so much, but, uh, I'm sure, you know, we can be stretched still by some other things that we're learning here, but it says this in, in one, in one place, uh, there is no such thing as a Messiah without Israel. Okay. Now, right there, right, right off from the, the, the bat, you know, I can hear the defense mechanisms going up. If you were talking to somebody who's entrenched in standard Christianity, He goes on, he says, he lived in this world as part of Israel. He gave his life as part of Israel, and he will return as part of Israel. By definition, Messiah is the king of Israel, representing and defending and ruling over his people. His life is in his people, and the life of his people is in him. 
Amen. Amen. Right. Mm. And I want to. I want to go just just one more. One more. Just what page to, are you on in I, this I book? I was on page twelve. I'm uh -huh. going to go to page eighty, mm -hmm. and I want to read this. It was the Jews who told the Gentiles about him. Okay. Okay. Because I'm setting that. I'm going here now because we're going, we're going back into why we're teaching you know, the Hebraic roots of our faith and, and where this causes, uh, you know, this resistance in, in Gentiles. Um, but here, to, to my Gentile audience, it was the Jews who told the Gentiles about him. It was Jews who turned the, the idolatrous first century world upside down. It was the Jews who gave the writings of Matthew through Revelation to the world. These were, these were Jews who acted in obedience to the com a command to their king to make disciples of all the Gentiles. The claim that it was the Jews who rejected Christ is made in order to justify the theology, casting off the Jews and selecting a new people of God. The claim is false, and it demeans God's grace, faithfulness, and power. Can't be any more direct than that. I, I think I, I need. That's why I read it, Kathy. Because that is so direct. It is so perfect for as we continue now in this mm -hmm. turning the page on going back to why where we, we stress what we stress and the resistance of the Christian world to that fact. That and truth. every statement that you just read there, you can go to the Word and see exactly who these people were, what they said. The Bible confirms every single thing you just every said there. Every word of it. Absolutely. Every word right. of it. So we'd have to say, I know you're right, but... but right. In order I know to, what the Bible to, says, right. but... Yeah, so so setting the stage for you know again this this there is an ancient hatred to the Jewish people. We read that in Ezekiel, I think it's chapter five or thirty-five, five, I believe it is. There is that spiritual element here. We, I know we've been talking very practical. You've been talking scientific right. reasons, but and, and there, but there is a spiritual element, and that might be the spiritual component that Jordan Peterson yes. is, is touching yes. on. Yes. Um, and, and, and one thing I was talking to you before we came on the podcast about this resistance of Christians, it's maybe especially Christians in the West, to see Jesus as someone than, other than themselves. Right. You know, this idea that Jesus must be like me. And no, it's we who have to become Be like, like him. him. Oh, abs absolutely. You know, these commonly held beliefs that make up, Gary, these make up the core of much of Christian theology, mm. okay? Um, this idea that we've replaced, that the church has somehow replaced Israel. God is done with Israel. Um, you know, they're, they're, we are now under grace and they were under the law. All of these kind of ideas exist, I believe, in like a collective lizard brain mm -hmm. for Christianity, yes. as well as in individual brains, right? Okay, of each of, of, of Christians. And the grooves are so deep because they've been instilled of us in us for many, many, many years. The, the responses that we hear to this are automatic. They are. Nobody even has to think about what they're going to say. It's automatic. It doesn't require much thought or effort, for instance, to say, the law is dead, we live under grace. And I say it doesn't require much thought or effort because with just a little thought and a little effort, like 
reading our Bibles, we can see that grace always has been central to God's plan of redemption all the way back from the garden to the Ab- garden. Absolutely. I mean, he, he wanted what was best for his creation. And it was, it was by his grace that we were created. And it was by his grace that he chose Abraham after much after the fall to restore our relationship back to him. It going all the way back to Abraham, we can find that it was God who approached him, not the other way around. That's grace, Kathy. That's that's the definition of grace. That's right. Unmerited favor. Right. Abraham and choosing Israel, all of that is grace. It's not because Israel deserved any, you know, they were any better or they had earned right. anything that God did for them. Um, it's not that we earn anything that God does for us, but this this is not a new idea. No. It's a true idea. Good. That has Good. always existed. Yes, always existed. It's not about grace versus law. Right. This is about God, because of his grace, gave us instructions on how to live. That's right. So when we hear concepts like the law is dead, that theology, okay, that neurophysiological mechanism, okay, the law is dead, mm. it's become like riding a bike. Not much thought has to be put into it. You just say it, right? You don't have to think about it. That's all we've known. So same idea. Israel's been replaced by the church. Does not take a whole lot of thinking to say that. Mm. We've known it since we were children. We don't have to question it anymore. It's comfortably filed away. (laughs) (laughs) In your brain, as you were talking about at the beginning. Um, And yet, what happened in 1948? Right. Right? Israel's back. It should have sent shockwaves throughout the Christian world. And I imagine to some degree it It did. It did. Yes, 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 yes. But not enough. But not enough. But but, but a start in amongst Mm. those who were willing or who had eyes to see and ears to hear. They had to say, I, I say this a lot, what do we do with what do we do with the fact that we have been saying Israel's done, but it's back? Yeah. What do we do with that? Yeah. You know? I think, Kathy, I, I used the example many years ago in teaching about this, um, and I called it Christian imprinting. And what, what basically what Jordan Peterson and the others are talking about to me is goes back to that imprinting. Um, there was a, I think the first report on this goes all the way back to 1516. It was a <laughs> Sir Thomas More. He was the first one to talk about this idea in animals, how their, their imprinting happens. But then it became famous by this, um, he was basically, I think he wasn't even a professional uh, scientist, but his name was Conrad Lorenz, and he was uh, working with Greylag geese. And he replaced the mother of the geese with himself when the when these eggs hatched he was what they saw right and he marched around his laboratory and the geese followed him around as if he was the the mother because it was the first thing that they saw and even when he replaced himself with the true mother they followed him now and so this is why i i use this and called it christian imprinting because what you just said we have this idea of what is true and then even when Israel was reborn in 1948, the truth presented to individuals, yeah, the, they continued to follow the The false, mother duck was the reinduced, mother duck. Yes. reintroduced. The mother duck was reintroduced, but we kept following the, the, the yeah. amateur scientists. Exactly. So that's what happened with our theology. They, Israel is reintroduced. The truth is presented to everyone. 
and yet we want to keep following our wow. theology. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I love that there's all these different ways mm -hmm. to get to the same truth concept. There are different ways of speaking about it. And any one of these may reach you in our audience. You know, maybe Gary's story about the, the ducklings, okay? Oh, you're like, oh, now I, I get this, you right. know, whatever it is. Um, maybe it's JBP, because I like JBP and the, the psychology that, that he uses. But, you know, I was, as I was researching for this, I actually came up with something else that reinstates pretty much what we're saying. And this is um, some research from 2009 with the Barna Group, okay? Mm. And I just have to read what they found in their research because um, it's hitting right on the head of what we're talking about. It said that Bible reading has become the religious equivalent of soundbite journalism. When people read from the Bible, they typically open it up read a brief passage without much regard to the context, and consider the primary thought or feeling that the passage provided. If they're comfortable with it, they accept it. Otherwise, they deem it interesting but irrelevant to their life and they move on. Mm. There is shockingly little growth evident in people's understanding of the fundamental themes of the scriptures and amazingly little interest in deepening their knowledge and application of biblical principles. Whoa, what a condemnation mm. of Christianity. This is basically, this is an assessment of Christianity, Christians, the church as a whole. I, I, I've seen this over the years. I think you know, sometimes we treat the, the Bible as a Ouija board, you know, just looking for some answers. Or I, I, well, I think more broadly, it's based on this me, me, me mentality, you know. And sadly, preachers feed that. Right. It's all about me, me, me. How can I be blessed? How can I live a more fulfilled life? How it's all can centered I, on I, me. I, I, and that, you know, the Bible is, is just the opposite. How do we serve our fellow man? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your brother, your neighbor as yourself. Paradigm shift. S serve. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, when we have this opportunity to, in my case, in your case, say, uh, serve Jewish people. We jump at it, right? Because that's what that's what the, we see in the in the word. Mm -hmm. That's what we see as an opportunity to partner with God. That's right. That's yeah. right. I just find it fascinating that their conclusion was that people don't know much and they don't care that they know much. Yeah, that's even sadder. That's really interesting. Um, or they're they're just okay with what they know. Okay. And I would actually even say they maybe they think they do know. Maybe they think they know everything. I guess maybe that's another way of looking at it. Mm. But what they were saying is, yes, they think they know, but they actually don't know. Right. Okay? But they're they're happy with where they are. And that's and to me that's where you get when you're unteachable. Mm. Okay? God can't teach you anything else. Well, why is he going to push on that? You know, yeah. uh, let's find someone who has eyes to see and where ears to hear. Found where he's given entry. Where he's given entry. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Barna noted that some of the critical assumptions of many preachers and Bible teachers are actually inaccurate. So there's JBP's mm. low resolution, erroneous neurophysiological mechanism. <laughs> okay. Ooh, I said all that. Right. The problem, okay, once again, I'm quoting the problem facing the Christian church is not that people lack a complete set of beliefs. 
The problem is that they have a full slate of beliefs in mind, which they think are consistent with biblical teachings, and they are neither open to being proven wrong nor to learning new insights. Mm. This is exactly what we've been talking about, exactly. Gary. Yeah, and this, this research showed, showed it. Showed it, showed and in fact, true. I'm going to go on. Our research suggests that this challenge initially emerges in the late adolescent or early teenage years. By the time most Americans reach the age of 13 or 14, they think they pretty much know everything of value in the Bible that it has to teach, and they are no longer interested in learning more scriptural content. It requires increasingly concise, creative, reinforced, and personally relevant, this is what you were just talking about, Mm -hmm. efforts to penetrate people's minds with new or more accurate insights into genuinely biblical principles. In a culture driven by the desire to receive value, more Bible teaching is generally not viewed as an exercise in providing such value. That's so sad. And when you think about the the guide, the the instruction manual for living. That's it. And it's considered irrelevant. Irrelevant, yes. And this, to me, hit on also this age thing. Remember the age at which God said, okay, you guys have to die in the desert. It was Mm. 20. So this one's even saying by teenage years. We've gotten that, and, and and maybe that's why we see, you know, they say people are, you know, leaving the church, the teenagers, they go off to college, they don't come back, you know, they think they've got everything they that could be yeah. of any value, they don't need anymore. And and I think this this goes back to that original imprinting that they have, and that's it. That's as right. As far as they're going to go. So if we use JBP's wording, the commonly held Christian belief that we are not under the law, but under grace is a low-resolution, erroneous neurophysiological mechanism that's buried deep in our lizard brains. You can't kill it. You have to create another mechanism to overcome it. Mm-hmm. And Gary, we've mentioned that mechanism. It's truth, truth. right? It's straight scripture, truth. Amen. It's always been about grace, and it's always been about the law. It's or Torah. It's not one or the other. We both, they both have different purposes. They both exist in the same sheepfold of ideas. But to open up to that idea, that sheepfold of ideas, that it's not one or the other, is not easy to do. And Gary, you, you hit on this as a pastor. It's particularly difficult for pastors, leadership. To get there. Yes. And I mean, you know, and in their defense, pastors didn't start out as they weren't born pastors. No. They start out like everybody else. They, they've been <laughs> then hearing the lies all their lives. So you've got that imprinting or the grooves formed. So they're, they're starting from that position already. Then they go to seminary where it's reinforced. That's right. And they you pay know, for it. Pay for it. So right. now I've got, you know, I've got an investment, investment. in this. And now, now you come out and you're trying to start a ministry and you've got to answer to a board of directors or you've got a a mortgage on a building you know and then you have the people's expectation because those people have the same grooves the same you know they're the same ones that in the wilderness were saying Take us back to Take Egypt. Back. Yeah. We're not comfortable out here. They don't want to hear anything new. So you, as a pastor, you're standing up there presenting something new, and they're going, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. That's, That's right. not how I learned it. That's not what I understand. And so you, all these pressures as a pastor to, are you going to stand on the Word of God, or are you going to stay in that groove where it's comfortable and everybody loves you and worships the ground you walk on? And you pay for the building. And you pay the building. You make, you know, you get uh, big ministries and 
and everybody's just going along uh, happy, but totally misguided. Right. And and that's that is that is really the choice that's that has to be made. Uh, so I'm 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 sympathizing because I understand it's not an easy choice, but we have to make make a decision. Is it God, God's word? Or is it the people's opinion? You know, I wouldn't want to be a pastor in that situation. I'm glad I'm just me <laughs> because it is much easier for, for me course. to make that yeah. decision than, than it is for a pastor to make that decision. In the same way, it's much harder in that whole COVID scenario for a doctor or an expert to learn something new than it was for you and I to sure. just look at the evidence and go, well, of course, there right. you know, there you go. This is not a, yeah. uh, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And we're like, that's pretty easy to see, right? <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, how do we avoid, as JBP said, bloody trauma, mm. okay? Bloody trauma. That's what we're trying to avoid. We don't want to have to learn this the hard right. way. And I loved what the guys were saying in the roundtable discussion. They talked about the importance of these tiny little hero's journeys. Deliberately put yourself in positions where your faith beliefs can be challenged. Mm. Okay, don't just preach to the choir. Okay, that's where most of us are comfortable. Do this a little bit of a time here and there so you don't get too fearful of an opposing idea and you don't become scared of learning something new. Right. I, I love this idea of just stepping out there. We're not talking about, okay, the pastor's got it harder. I, I, I totally get that. Okay, but all right, let's just talk to all the rest of you who aren't pastors. Just put an idea out there. I understand this to be true, mm. that um, the law is dead and done away with, okay, and now we're under grace. Allow someone to, to challenge that and, and, and hear that, listen for that, and see what you can do. Like I always say, what do you do with this knowledge and this new knowledge? But if you don't even open yourself up to that to begin with... Right. You'll yeah, never know. You'll you've never got know. you've got to research it out. And again, don't take Kathy or I my my word for it. Don't go to the scripture. Look it out in context. Look at the entire body of work, not just cherry picking scriptures as we've talked That's about. That's what we've talked about. Because anybody can make an argument with one passage, but you've got to look at the entire body of work and see if. Uh, let me let me just ask you a question, real, real quick here. Mm -hmm. Would God give a set of instructions? and then have his son or any of, of the disciples of his son contradict that. Think about that for a moment. And, and then take that as a paradigm and go and search that out. How is God consistent? Is he the same yesterday, today, and always? Is he no shadow of turning? Then, then how is it that we can teach that he changed everything midstream? Think about that. It's such a low-resolution mechanism and yet so complete. Um, but you know, what you've got to, what we said about loving the truth, mm -hmm. that's where you have to hold. And I guarantee you that God's truth will withstand any challenge. Amen. Okay? The, eventually, all of these low-resolution, erroneous mechanisms are going to fall to the wayside. No yeah. matter how hard you try to hold on to them, That's they're right. going to eventually fall to the wayside. God's truth will not. 
it will eventually win out. So you don't have to be afraid of that. Okay. It is strong enough to hold up to your questions or someone else's questions. You know, one of the best ways I think Gary to engage in little heroes journeys is that great, uh, Hebraic idea of Midrash. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Um, Looking, you know, sitting with a group of people exactly like they're doing in the Jordan Peterson roundtable, they are midrushing, okay? And each is bringing his piece to the table, and the others are refined and they're learning more. And I'm uh, uh, Prager, mm-hmm. who's been in Torah all of his life as a Jewish person, is sitting there gaining information and frequently says so. I never thought about it that way. Mm. I see this a new way now. I I, I love hearing him say that because he's been in it for a long, long time. And he's hearing from these other people and going, oh, okay. Iron sharpens iron. Exactly, exactly. You know, so the problem, of course, the model in Christianity is not Midrash. It's one person standing at the front telling everybody else what the truth is. Right. That model in and of itself is not conducive to to getting rid of all of these erroneous ideas. Especially if the if the one teaching uh, is not willing to to love the truth and is is teaching erroneous ideas, it's just going to continue to pass the lie. What, what do we talk about? Inherit? Oh, you yeah. Haven't, oh yes, we're, we're going to talk about that. About yes, we're going to talk lies. about those lies. So you know, let's get let's try to bring this to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. You have heard us say over and over again, don't put God in a box. Now, we can think of all of these little neurophysiological mechanisms that our brain creates as little boxes that we try to stuff God into. (laughs) And you know what? He's not going to stay there, gang. He just is not going to stay there. That's just not where he's going to be. Pharaoh tried to put the God of Israel into a box of being just one God among many. And Yehovah wasn't going to have it. And unfortunately, Pharaoh had to suffer bloody trauma in order to learn that the God of Israel was going to get his way. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 16. Gary, 16, prophesied about the time when Israel would be restored and the people would come home to the land of Israel. Now, folks, this context for what I'm getting ready to read you from uh, Jeremiah 16 is the time when Israel has been restored and the people are coming home. Is, is that now, Gary? Absolutely, yes. Kathy. <laughs> so he's talking about now, in our time, when all of you listening here on the podcast are alive. And that, see, that's context. Once again, yes. understanding scripture in context. The prophet goes to great lengths to, under, to help us understand there would be a day, and that day is today, right. that Ju- Israel would be restored and Jewish people would be coming back. And then and this would then happen. it says, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth, that's us, and say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthless and unprofitable things. These lies, these worthless and unprofitable things that we have inherited from the fathers are the low resolution, erroneous paradigms and doctrines that have been passed down within the church for generations without question. This would include but not be limited to (laughs) the church has replaced Israel. Jesus did away with the Torah. 
we are un, not under law, but under grace. Those are just three biggies, right? Three biggies. That we deal with all yeah. the time, uh -huh. right? Okay. These are the low resolution erroneous mechanisms. They, these are some of the lies that have gotten stuck in our collective church lizard brain. <laughs> and God is going to have to shake things up a bit, perhaps create a, li a little, here I go, pre-cosmogonical chaos <laughs> so that everything can reset back to the truth. It's not going to be easy. We know it's not easy. It's going to be uncomfortable. But as with all heroes' journeys, it will be well worth it. You know, Gary, that's why I don't really worry too much when I hear that church attendance is dropping, mm -hmm. young people are leaving the church. Maybe this is part of the chaos that God is using to reset and restore everything. Well, that's that's a good point. I hope you're right. I hope I'm right too. But yeah. I, I know that I can I know he's doing it. He's mm -hmm. talking about the restoration of all things. That does involve a little bit of of, of, of chaos, you it, know, it to go chaos. through. And I you know, I, 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 I lay that on the on the idea of, of um, narrow is the way and broad that's is the right. way of the destruction. So it's hard to imagine that this is going to be a, a broad turning of, of the Christian church. All we can do is, is pray and try to reach as many as possible. That's right. You know, I, I'm, I'm wondering if perhaps God is raising up a generation that will be brave enough to take the hero's journey, so. to cross through the wilderness, to suffer discomfort in order to reach his truth. Mm -hmm. Until next time, remember what the psalmist said, those who love your Torah have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Shalom, everyone. Shalom. Thank you for listening. Please join us next time on Torah Talk.